You are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Martire and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. In episode 103, I interviewed Peter Sobchak, editor-in-chief of Canadian Interiors, building magazine, and lover of great design. Peter and I talked about criticism and media literacy, or lack thereof, in the architecture industry, and the challenges that it poses. Listening to learn more about Peter's thinking on the subject. Thanks, Peter, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So let's jump right into the questions. And can you tell us what media literacy is? Well, media literacy in a broad stroke means kind of what the words are definable as. So literacy, as you know, is the ability to read and write, the literacy to or the ability to consume um, content in a way. And if you think about literacy first. You remember how you know, when we would learn how to read and write, your first step really was to be able to uh, decipher and understand the symbols, right? So the strokes on a piece of paper, understand what those things mean. They mean letters. Then you put the letters together and they form words. And then you have to understand what the words mean and what the intent of those things are. And that's the building blocks of literacy, the ability to understand purpose and intent behind originally the, you know, the written language, but on a broader scale, just communication in general. Media literacy is pretty much the exact same thing, just as it applies to media. It's the ability to understand what the purpose of that media is, whatever the form of that media is. The newspaper you're reading, the magazine you're reading, the television show you're watching, the social media feeds you're following, any of those things. They're all forms of media. And media literacy is the ability to understand what you're consuming, where it comes from, what the intent is, uh, and react accordingly. Um, you know, either either you accept what you're consuming or you don't. But either way, you understand what what the purpose of that media uh, entity is. So, why, in your opinion, this is important? Well, in the simple in the simple strokes, it's important just to be aware and uh, uh, just to be aware of what you're consuming. Think about a similar analogy with food. Right, food literacy is also an important thing. It's becoming more so all the time where it, uh, the, the 
idea is that people should be more engaged and more aware and more understanding of what they're putting into their bodies because of the effect that it would have on their bodies. Now, things like chemicals in food have a very immediate um, and potentially long-lasting and potentially fatal impact on, on you, on your body. So obviously you should be aware of what you're putting into your body. Well, the same, the same rules apply to the media. You are putting something into your brain. Shouldn't you be aware of what you're putting into your brain? Shouldn't you be an active uh, agent in deciding what goes into your brain and understanding what the effects will be on yourself, on your, on how you think, and then therefore how you act in the real world? Um, people should be that uh, committed and that much of an active uh, participant in what gets into their bodies, into their brains and all that stuff. So that's why, to me, media literacy is incredibly important because like the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage into your brain, it will have an effect on everything, on, on how you think, how you act, who you interact with, the decisions that get made, and ultimately everything that has to do with uh, living in this uh, social world. Media literacy today, however, seems to have taken on an incredibly um, potent and immediate importance because without getting too deep into hyperbole, uh, it seems like the media landscape has become so dangerously toxic to foundations of social interaction that people more so than ever need to be in, uh, very aware of what they're consuming, what they're being fed, because they're getting fed more garbage than ever before. And I'm talking specifically now about social media. Mm -hmm. Social media to me is on so many levels, one of the, it's, it, it's, it's a, ultimately it's a paradox because it is at once potentially one of the great liberators of communication, but at the same time, the social media landscape that we now have, meaning the one that has evolved over the last 15 to 20 years, has become so incredibly toxic and uh, very immediate short-term impacts on everything from the individual to the social collective that if people are not becoming acutely aware of what that uh, landscape entails, we will have long-term problems. Social media to me is, an, it is essentially an invasive species. The media landscape historically took generations to evolve and that length of time allowed people to adapt and uh, understand and absorb the changes in the media landscape. In less than half a generation, social media has had that same effect, but has not, humans, like the, the social network of, our, of how humans interact has not had time to adapt to what social media uh, was, is able to do. So in my mind, it's, it acts very much like an invasive species. It moves into a, split, uh, a space where there's, no competition, and it just takes over. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more because um, I recently read a book called Zucked, and it was a scathing account of uh, what Facebook has become, but a lot of the media, so social media platforms operate under the same premise. And I think a big issue with social media is that it's preying on um, psychological patterns or, or effects that um, our interaction with the media has and it creates a form of addiction. And I think it's a very dangerous thing to get involved with if it's not done mindfully, not that it has no purpose. And I think that's a conversation almost for another podcast because it, you know, we could invite uh, psychologists and sociologists and talk about this for hours. Um, 
But I'm glad you jumped into the topic of social media because I wanted to ask you what are the main differences in your mind between traditional online and social media? So I would lump traditional and online media into the same category for now, for purposes of this conversation. Just because in and of itself, the internet... Okay, actually, I should take a step back. In and of itself, social media is not um, inherently evil. Mm -hmm. that, it's, it's hard to sort of understand that now, given how the, as investigative journalists dig deeper into, for instance, the effects that uh, Facebook has had on the uh, political landscape across the world, things like obviously Trump and the Russian involvement in the American elections, all, but that's, that's obviously dominating the spectrum right now, the, the bandwidth. But there's examples all over the world where Facebook has clearly and egregiously crossed the boundaries of social responsibility. But it's not like that was the intention. <laughs> the irony, this, this is what drives me crazy, the, the true irony of Facebook uh, and all social media, but really Facebook is the Leviathan in that landscape, is that it was, it was invented, oddly enough, with the best intentions, but sadly it was invented with uh, absolutely gross levels of hubris and an even grosser missionary intent at its mm -hmm. core. Mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg really truly believed that he would be bringing something to the world that would change the world for the better. And because of that, and this, this is an important detail, because of his hubris but, and also his, his insane narcissism, he cannot see the possibility of how his invention would be hijacked by mm -hmm. people who have anything but good intentions. And it, I, I read this once and it, it just punched me in the, in the stomach. If, if Mark Zuckerberg had invented Facebook with the intention of blind uh, growth and profit as the core, like any other good business normally does. Mm -hmm. if, he, if he had invented Facebook with that at, at its core, he would have invented something that wouldn't be so easy to hijack and manipulate the way the architecture behind social media by its very nature is allowed, is, is able to be done. And just look at Russia as a perfect mm -hmm. example, totally hijacked the core infrastructural purpose of what social media is meant to do, which let's be very clear right on the outset, social media's foundational design is not to, uh, not to encourage deliberation. In fact, it's the, it's the exact opposite. Social media's purpose is to encourage engagement. And by that, I mean um, motivation, mm -hmm. meaning social media is designed to, uh, to think of it as a Petri dish, to grow emotion, not deliberation. And so to, to your point, to your question about what's the difference, the difference between traditional media and social media is traditional media was born in and evolved out of a mental landscape of the value of, of thought, the value of debate, the value of deliberation. Nothing good comes quickly. <laughs> and the idea was it takes time to develop relevant and important ideas. It takes even more time to figure out ways to convey those ideas to people. And it takes time for people to be able to ingest, think about, ask questions, and engage intelligently with that content. The mm -hmm. point is, it takes time. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking decades, although way back in the early days of, of especially uh, print literacy, like if we want to go back to the Middle Ages, yeah, sometimes it did take decades. But even in the last, you know, even within the last 150 years, um, it took time. The problem is that social media does not work with time. It, in fact, does everything possible to undermine 
deliberation, the deliberation that's necessary with time. It only works well by uh, snap reactions, by putting something in front of you that you will have a visceral emotional reaction to, mm -hmm. that you will then forward on to somebody, you will respond, you will like it by doing either a heart emoji or even just the like button. Any of the, the dozens of uh, tools that social media has invented for you to engage with the content, that's what it's trying to do, is get you to engage with the content. Not think about it, but just engage it. And that's one of the primary differences, between, I think, between traditional media and social media, is that traditional media put a higher value on uh, creating quality through time commitment. They would hire experts who learned what they learned and came to the conclusions they came to by going through the steps of uh, time commitment to either become educated and then form a coherent argument and then all the other steps down the ladder or up the ladder uh, to get to a point where they can now have a relevant uh, opinion. Social media doesn't care about that. Mm -hmm. So you've partially answered my next my next question, which was why do you think traditional media are important? And if there's anything you want to add to that question, uh, that that would be great. But I guess the follow up question to that is, um, how do you distinguish between good and bad outlets through the lens of media literacy? So you've described at the beginning of this interview what media literacy is. Um, how is that applied to one's thought process, so to speak, when considering different media outlets? Okay, so there's kind of two questions in there, so I'll try to get to both of them somewhat, somewhat differently. Um, unfortunately, we have to sort of now work backwards a bit uh, as a sort of a collective conscious exercise. And the thing, uh, efforts are being put in place and the ball is beginning to roll to roll us back away from the shiny thing mentality that everyone was attracted to in the early days of social media. The blind optimism that, hey, this might very well uh, solve the entrenched problems within the world of uh, elitism and you know, limited access to, to truth and all that kind of stuff. Um, it gave, you know, to the, the optimism that social media might give the disenfranchised a voice in an otherwise limited vocal landscape. That's how it, but you know, that, although that might have been the, the hope or the goal originally, we're so far down the rabbit hole now that we need a collective exercise of, of rolling back. And by that, I mean to understand what you're uh, consuming, back to the, you know, the point you made about, about mm -hmm. uh, the question you asked about literacy and the point I made about garbage in, garbage out. To know what you're being fed requires everyone to take a few moments when they look at something and either think of or ask, where did it come from? And then the next question is, what's its source or what, more importantly, what's its purpose? And the reason they need to do that is because every piece of media has a purpose. It doesn't just come out of the ether fully formed and driven by a higher purpose. It has, it's been designed with a goal in mind. People have to understand that. You know, when, when a news item pops up in your social media feed, you have to wonder where did that come from? But more importantly, what was its point? Just because your mom posts something about uh, uh, you know a, a news item questioning um, the real the, the real world the benefit of making contraceptive uh, legal in third world countries or whatever stuff mm -hmm. like that. Just because your mom posts that doesn't mean that it's been vetted. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you got to think of what was the source of that topic mm -hmm. and that and that feed and go deeper than that. And that's, a, that's often a problem. People in studies have shown that people put a higher value on who posts 
the, the news item than they do on what the source of the news item was. And an even uh, more concerning thing I read recently is that people, people trust to a higher degree where an item falls in a Google search than they do about the source of what it is. Mm-hmm. Meaning every, the, 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 one of the most important things uh, a media outlet can hope for anybody really is if they fall in what's called the first page. Mm-hmm. Right? If, you have to, if, you, if someone has to click through a few pages of a Google search to find that link, it's almost a lost cause. Yeah. But no one seems to question, well, what are the algorithms that decide how something falls into that first page? Mm-hmm. What they don't know is that Google's driven by money. So they are creating algorithms that encourage certain types of content, which attract certain types of advertisers, which is where their source, their, their revenue source comes from. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it altruistically or thinking about the content itself. That's our job. People should be thinking about where the content comes from and why it's being put out there. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with taking a few steps back in the history of, or at least the modern history of the media landscape and saying, okay, we should give higher value to things that have already proven to more or less, uh, I say that sort of like scratching the air in front of me, more or less with quotes around it, have proven that they are uh, reputable and objective in how they uh, create and disseminate content. So outlets like, I'll just throw some names out there, like the New York Times, Mm -hmm. not always perfect, but let's give the... Let's give the pros a chance. I think is yeah, they have one hundred and fifty years of being in print or something. Yeah, but it, it goes back to the idea of um, what you were saying earlier: is that developing ideas and putting them out there takes time, and the, to become a reputable source, you got to put your time in. And you know, there's also something to be said about third-party endorsements uh, because we tend to trust people in our um, direct networks. So if some family member posts something that's completely false, but because they're in your direct network, it kind of creates that echo chamber that um, starts to seclude you from the rest of the world because you're in that bubble. I'm talking about social media. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the main dangers behind Facebook. It's been demonstrated that it creates echo chambers that people get stuck in and they only see the same news items time and time again. And that creates... Um, um, addiction to certain behaviors and also um, it makes them more susceptible to accept those ideas even if they're completely false and that's that's kind of becoming a bit of a dangerous game to play. Yeah, and to that point, people have to understand that Facebook has no incentive to change itself. In fact, I said it, I, I heard it once beautifully said, the problem with Facebook is Facebook. Mm-hmm. And yet, who in their right mind would change Facebook? Because it is the it is in the top five of the most powerful companies in the world right right now, bar none. Like I don't show me another company that that has an intimate connection with 2.5 billion people on mm-hmm. the planet, which is what Facebook's reach is now, just shy of 2.5 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is one of the most profitable companies in the world, mm-hmm. easily in the top, you know, th- three or four. And if you broaden the spectrum and look at uh, the entire business landscape, within the top ten, six of them are. Tech companies, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon, right? Companies that have a vested interest in taking advantage of emotions, taking advantage, creating algorithms that are designed to give you more of what you want, not to challenge you to think, but to exactly the way you said, a filter bubble, an echo chamber, to give you exactly more of what you want. Facebook has no uh, intention 
of being anything but Facebook and people hoping that someone, some, some greater uh, power from up on high will change Facebook, it won't. Mm -hmm. even, though, even though countries are now realizing, holy crap, we let these guys get too far. Like Sri Lanka, for instance, just the other day, two day, a day or two ago, um, blocked a whole bunch of social media channels, at least until investigations are done about the church bombings on the weekend. Mm -hmm. But this isn't the first time they've done that. They blocked uh, Facebook a few years ago when there was uh, another mass killing. Mm -hmm. uh, other countries are beginning to realize, wow, these unchecked, these guys are a danger. But wait, expecting a government to, um, there, there, there's something almost... Uh, almost something brave new worldish about trying to expect <laughs> the government to step in and almost asking the government to step in and control our consumption of media is the very thing that, you know, Aldous Huxley, or even if you go farther back, uh, night or for 1984, George Orwell, it's the same idea. Like it's, what, what do you want? Do you want a deeply controlling government or do you want free, free media? Mm -hmm. Problem is we gave free media to social media and look what it's done. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's become quite clear through the course of that conversation, but also in all the thinking I've been doing around that topic for the last little while, that, you know, the same way 150 years ago when um, captains of industry owned the newspapers and they controlled the news, they shouldn't have been trusted. Um, and, and it should be the same with social media and all those tech companies. They're not our friends. They might be very useful and very convenient, but they're not our friends. And we shall never forget that because if we do... And it leads to the problems we've just been talking about. So I think that's that's the kind of the one of the key takeaways from uh, why media literacy is important. Yeah, no, it, that's actually very true because you're right to 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 compare it to sort of the latter decades of traditional media being like the print, you know, you know, print forms like the major broadsheets in different cities, um, radio and even television. Uh, you're right. There was a point where. You know, like somewhere in the 80s, early 90s, where people were, were much more aware that this isn't a benign uh, entity. You, these are products with, a, with an agenda. So once you know that, and once you are aware of what the agenda is, okay, well, we're not saying strike it from uh, the, you know, the, the, the bookshelves mm -hmm. or the uh, newsstands, but just be aware of what you're buying when you pick up the New York Times versus the Wall Street Journal versus... Mm -hmm. You know some of the titles that had a much more conservative bent or whatever. Point is, is that people kind of knew by that point. They haven't come. They're only now coming to that realization with social media. Mm -hmm. the problem is how much damage has already been done. Who's? It's hard to say at this point. Yeah, we can only speculate, but I'm. I'd be willing to bet that in the next ten, fifteen years, we'll see, maybe not quick changes, but pretty dramatic changes in how things are consumed. And because, I'd be. I'd go out on a limb and say that if Facebook keeps doing what it's doing, it's going to shoot itself in the foot because um, it's going to create a lot more problems. And then, you know, they'll have to answer to a lot more people, right? Like what happened in Sri Lanka. Um, and, and I think it, they have to, at some point, wake up to it. They may not dramatically change, but at least do a few things to kind of make things a little better. Um, but going back to the idea of media literacy, what can my listeners do to become more media literate? Okay, so before you can get to a concrete um, strategy, you have to have a uh, conceptual or a mental strategy. And I think it starts there. You have to first make yourself very aware that everything has an agenda. Everything is trying to do something, yourself included. So what is that? Mm -hmm. And 
moving forward from there, you start to look at things through the lens of uh, what's its purpose? What do I want out of it? Once you've done that, once you've gone through that mental exercise and almost trained yourself to look sideways at things, to be, uh, to be critical, but not, uh, and we'll get to that in a few minutes when we talk about criticism, there's a difference between criticism and intolerance. And it's important to make that differentiation because everyone should have a critical eye. But a critical eye just means that you don't get fed, you don't accept everything you're fed at face value. Mm-hmm. You ask a question or two. So in term, once you come to that mental realization and you start to make it a part of your everyday living, then as you approach media, you, you pick up the product and you say, okay, what's its purpose? What's it trying to do? But more importantly, you pick up more than just one. Right, mm-hmm. And you don't just pick up something that your friend said, hey, I think you'll like this. Go to someone who you actually don't, uh, you're not sure you like what they have to say. Um, and you, might, it might be tough. I'm not sure your audience would want to do this. But you, if you were brave, you'd go up to the person you're almost, uh, you feel you don't agree with and say, what are you reading? What's your source? Where are you getting this mm-hmm. from? Point is, to your question about how to, uh, you know, how, basically how, how to broaden the spectrum of literacy is you have to read more. Mm-hmm. You have to consume more, but with a filter, with a critical eye about where it's coming from and what it's going to do. So in a nutshell, buy more magazines. Mm-hmm. Subscribe to more online, uh, uh, online magazines, yeah. online properties. Be aware that you get what you pay for. That's, there's certain truisms in, in life, and that's one of them. If you pay nothing, you're getting nothing. And I'm sure we'll come to that in a few minutes when you ask me questions about the state of the architecture media landscape. I know it's going to sound like uh, you know, the, the guy whose career is based on the media is asking people, well, you want to, you want to improve your outlook on, uh, on things? Pay for the media? I know mm-hmm. it sounds self-serving, but it's true. It's so not the self-serving part, the part about you get what you pay for. And if you don't pay for your media, you're going to get garbage. Why do you think a McDonald's meal can cost $5? Mm. What will $5 get you at Whole Foods? Mm -hmm. Barely entrance through the door. (laughs) You know, whereas you can, you can get 8,000 calories of garbage for five bucks at McDonald's, Mm -hmm. right? Well, we are all becoming acutely aware of you get what you pay for as it relates to food. Why can't you apply the same metric to media? Yeah, so I would say almost think of that. To, if you're asking your, uh, me to give advice to readers about how to become more media literate, think about the value of what's more important, what's going into your brain or what's coming out of your wallet. Ultimately, what's going into your brain will help inform what comes out of your wallet and you'll spend money on what is of value. And what's of value is media that takes the time to do it properly. Yeah, so you're almost talking about investing in your own education, so to speak. That's a fantastic way to put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you are investing in yourself. That's great. Um, so let's talk about architectural media. What, in your opinion, is missing in that field? Well, okay, so first of all, all media has been kneecapped by social media. And by that I mean, on a very literal level, revenue is just drying up or almost completely gone. In the past, the media outlets would rely on advertising revenue or subscriptions. Without getting too deep into uh, subdividing the types of media out there, because there is different business models behind certain types of the media. Mm-hmm. There's consu- broadly speaking, there's media geared towards general consumers and media geared towards professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I'll, I can talk about the difference between those two later, but for now, they both basically followed similar models of relying on revenue that came from advertising and revenue that comes from subscribers. Well, advertisers have an agenda, obviously. You could argue that subscribers have an agenda too, but let's, for now, we can just hope that what that agenda is is uh, educating themselves, becoming aware. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, obviously entertainment is a huge part of what they're willing to pay for, but we can talk about that maybe later. But the problem that media had a while ago is putting way more trust or at least way more uh, of a business model behind advertising revenue. And then when social media came along and very quickly was able to show to the advertising world how much more value advertisers could get out of advertising in social media than they could out of normal, traditional media, um, advertisers just, like it was, it was a stampede practically. They flocked mm-hmm. to social media. Why? Because what advertisers want is targeted message engagement. They want to put their product or service in front of the eyes of people who are one of two things, either most likely going to buy it or eventually impressionable enough to buy it. The point mm-hmm. is they want people who are going to buy it. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense for a company that makes uh, diapers, for instance, to spend lots of money on ad campaigns that put uh, advertisements about diapers in front of people who don't have kids. Mm-hmm. What a waste. Yeah. Right? What they would love is for someone to say, I guarantee that your ad is going to be put in front of the eyes of expectant mothers. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, guess who can do that? Yeah. Social right? Social media. media. Way more effectively than a billboard on the side of a street or, so, you know, sadly, right. uh, TV ad. a TV ad yeah. who's, they're called broadcast for a reason. They mm-hmm. cast broadly to as broad an audience as possible. Mm-hmm. They're not narrow niche. So, unfortunately, architecture media, along with all other traditional media, has uh, a resource problem, meaning we don't, we're losing money badly. Um, and so, therefore, we do not have the resources to invest in um, what, well, invest in, in uh, the foundational pillars of traditional media, which is investigative journalism, longer storytelling, investment in the time necessary to tell a story properly, and, this is important, to do it in an objective way. Obviously, yes, to inform and educate our readers, but to do it in an objective way, show a balanced side to the story. Uh, to do that properly takes time. Unfortunately, time is money, mm-hmm. and traditional media is uh, hobbled, is crippled by a lack of, of money. So that, in a nutshell, that is the that, you know, one of the broad problems that all media, not just architectural media, is facing. Is, there, is criticism the same as presenting a balanced, uh, investigated opinion, or is it a different animal? Because you just talked about that uh, more uh, traditional investigative journalism. Is that what criticism is, or is criticism something else? Yeah, in, to me, I mean, semantically, they often get confused. Having a critical voice and, have, and, and criticizing are often conflated mm-hmm. as being the same. And I, for, I think for our purposes, they're not. Or no, let me rephrase that. They are the same, but not in a bad way. To me, in, the, the, the tenets of good journalism is to have a critical eye, is to not just, I said this before, is to not just accept at face value what you've been told, right? Is to ask questions. Ideally, is to be informed in how you ask questions, Mm-hmm. Right? And the more informed you are, the better the questions, and therefore the better the answers. And therefore, the better the story, the better the product, and ultimately the better the, the audience is consuming that product. So having a critical eye, to me, 
doesn't mean that you are inst- that, that you are inherently negative, right? Like I said before, cr- criticism is not the same as intolerance. Mm-hmm. To me, actually, if an ex- an expression of intolerance means you're not interested in uh, getting deeper to how what someone is thinking or how they came to those conclusions. Intolerance is not asking why. Mm-hmm. It's assuming doesn't matter why the outcome is what it is, and I don't care what it is, and I'm going to turn my back on on it. So. No, criticism is, uh, to, it, to me, is an inherently valuable thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. So let's look at maybe other industries that have more active criticism. And you and I talked before about the movie industry that has very, very sometimes violent criticism, violent, quote unquote. Um, why we don't we have that in architecture or very little of it? And uh, what would we benefit from having more of that? Well, okay, so architecture journalism, there's two ways to look at it, right? And to your question about looking at other, uh, other art forms, so to speak, and other, other places where there's a vibrant uh, chorus of critical voices, there's criticism aimed at the general public, and then there's criticism that you could argue is aimed at professionals, meaning the professional uh, uh, industry of architecture or architects within it. Um, And the reason I think it's important to separate the two is because there is an amount of criticism, architectural criticism, whose purpose is is aimed at the general public. Not as much as there used to be, just because there isn't as much of general media as there used to be. There aren't as many broad... uh, um, you know, broad-reaching newspapers, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. There aren't as many uh, consumer-oriented magazines. Right? Everything's becoming super niche. Everything's moving to social media, and we already exhausted that sad mm-hmm. topic. But yeah. um, there are there are architecture critics that are speaking to the general public, and their tone and, and what they're doing is slightly different, I would argue, than um, professional criticism geared or focused on professionals. And give me a minute to explain what I mean by that. The, the purpose, you could argue, that um, a critic, an architecture critic has in speaking to the general public, let's say, for instance, you know, the, the, someone from The Observer or someone from The New York Times, is to inform the general public about, um, about that building, mm-hmm. right? Um, is, to, is to bring uh, a, a level of, of uh, uh, intelligence or education that exposes elements of that building and speaks about it in, the, in a, the specific as well as the broader scope, the specific meaning this building specifically, and then the broader scope, how it fits into the, the environment around it. The, the weird thing, and I've always thought this about especially consumer-oriented um, or general public-oriented architecture criticism, is that it's, it's kind of, it's, kind of uh, it's, a, it's, it's an odd duck because unlike other art forms, Architecture is like once the building is done, it's not, there's nothing you can say that'll change it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's it's done. Now people just have to get used to it being there, yeah. right? Whereas food criticism, all right, or or to your point about film criticism, a critic could potentially change what gets put on the menu of a restaurant. Mm-hmm. A critic could potentially change what gets shown in a theater because compared to architecture, those are almost ephemeral. Those, those are very short-lived. Mm-hmm. A building, once it's built, it's a done deal. So what's the point of saying, I don't like that facade or I don't like that window treatment? Not that you know, that's a bad thing. I think it should be. But I think uh, critics in the architecture world speaking to the general public, 
would be better served by not wasting their time talking about the things they can't change, which is that building is there. It's done. Mm -hmm. What they could do is, well, a few things they could do. One, they could inform the public about how almost think you can call it architecture literacy, how to think about and look at a building, right? That's one way. But in a bigger, I think more valuable way is to talk about how that building is uh, a part of, is informed by, and could potentially inform the broader picture of the built environment. Mm -hmm. So creating an awareness within the general public about how, how buildings are built, why they're built the way they're built, and I'm not just talking about aesthetics. I'm, in fact, more interested, and I think architecture critics would be better served by talking more about things like uh, uh, planning policies, sources of funding, political agendas. There's that word, agenda. Realizing that nothing comes out of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Everything has a purpose behind it. What was the purpose? Why did they do that? Uh, all those types of things. It's Yes, I admit, it's boring to talk about uh, the finances necessary to build you know, a condo tower, but... If people want to get riled up about they're building a 30-story tower in a spot that originally had a two-story house, oh my God, what's that going to... Well, they should know the business case behind it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that everything should be given a pass, and quite the opposite, but it's better to be informed about, like I said, things like uh, the agendas that cities operate within as it relates to planning, massing, all that kind of stuff. And then all that trickles down to the architect because mm -hmm. the architect is serving someone's agenda mm -hmm. as well as their own. And this is where all the little elements come into it. That's the consumer side of things. Now, there's the professional side. I could talk about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. I know, and I've wondered this myself, and I've actually uh, talked to a few people to get a better sense of it, why there's not more architecture criticism within the architecture field itself. And the thing is, there is. It's just not widely done um, in a public sphere. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's not widely publicized in media, social or otherwise, social or traditional. So and can you give us examples of what that would look like? Well, what I'm saying is that architects don't go out of their way to criticize other architects. Mm -hmm. But think about it. It's a small industry. Mm -hmm. why, would you, why would you go out of your way to um, lambaste what you think is you know, a, a horrible building when you might end up working with that guy? Or you might end up being hired by the person who hired the architect to build that building. Mm -hmm. So it, it sounds simplistic, and I know there's deeper levels to it, but that, that's, that's a part of it. I've spoken to a few people, and they've been honest. They're like, yeah, you know what? It, it doesn't make sense to be... Uh, to, to be the guy going around calling people out for their bullshit when you might need to work with them down the road. Mm -hmm. You create a reputation for yourself. There's, for, there's also, and this, this isn't a, a, an exact one-to-one -one correlation, but I mean, everything creates a ripple effect. There is also certain professional requirements within the architecture industry where um, you cannot call into question another architect's professionalism. Um, you could be severely reprimanded for that. Now, I'm not saying you, if you were an architect, you couldn't say, I think that's an ugly building. Well, you could. You could say that. Again, to my point about you might ruffle the wrong feathers, you might mm -hmm. not get a gig down the road, but that notwithstanding, it's actually professional. It, it, there's codes of conduct that dictate that you cannot call into question another architect's professionalism, meaning you can't say, I don't think, the arch I don't think that guy who built that building um, uh, drew the plans 
to spec or convey, you know, there was a due diligence of X, Y, Z, or whatever. You, you can't. So it's a, it's a small line, but it's an important line. Mm -hmm. So if you were an architect and you were thinking, well, I really want to call to call attention to that building because it's going to fall down and kill somebody, the media is not the place to do that. There's other ways you can go about doing that. Mm -hmm. So what are you left with as far as professional criticism? You're left with a pretty narrow uh, bandwidth of choices to start, start being critical. So if there's rules around not calling into questions another architect's professionalism, uh, who, who has the authority to do so? Because that's, that's pretty... The governing hard. bodies. The bodies that license architecture, mm -hmm. or architects, I should say. So that creates another problem, because now you have that power into the, the hands of one single body um, that could decide to completely ignore the issue. I mean, hypothetically speaking, obviously. Um, yeah, and that, that's, kind, that's kind of moving into a whole other conversation yeah. about the um, very, very prescribed, very detailed codes of ethics. Not just codes of ethics, but like the, the, the rules that dictate... Uh, the profession of architecture, mm -hmm. um, and I'm not the one to have that conversation with. I mean, that, those are deep level, no, of course, not. almost legal issues um, to to start start talking about. You know, these governing bodies are there for a reason. Think about it this way, though: if you didn't like how someone was driving, should I give? Should should you have the right to take away their license? No, theoretically, you call the cops, mm -hmm. and you know the cops would go to the government, whoever sort of decides if you have the capacity to drive, yeah. <laughs> tests you, theoretically. I mean, I'm creating a very hypothetical situation here. Yeah. But think, you can just think of it in those terms. Like, you know, you don't have the right to, mm -hmm. to take away someone's license. Only the government does. Well, the government is a ruling, in this case, a ruling body of deciding if you have the ability to drive. Yeah. Same thing with the architecture bodies that issue licenses. They're the ones who decide, has this person... Created something like have they crossed a the line of it? Yeah, but that brings us back to the idea of literacy and not taking at face value everything we see. Because, you know, if one such body were to make the wrong decision or enforce the wrong rule, um, they should be able to be called into question as well. Again, this is another debate, but it's it's important to remind our listeners that. Um, as critical as they should be with media, I think the the key takeaway for me for this con for me from this conversation is to remind myself to be critical of everything, critical in the sense to not take it at face value and and take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I mean the it, it is an important topic in terms of uh, the sort of the structures in place to demand the best out of architects to make sure that they're not just building buildings that are up to code, I mean, that's an obvious, but also demanding the best out of them in terms of big picture issues, city building issues, aesthetics, all that kind of stuff, which is why, I mean, I've thought about, again, to what you're asking about the role of architectural critics. I've often thought that uh, just talking about a single building in isolation, and I can tell you from from my side of the, of the fence, like, I am on that side. Like, I am uh, a media outlet that much like the other media outlets is presented with content in a very specific type of way. And as a result, we, uh, we process it and retransmit it in a very particular way. And without slicing too many hairs in this part of the discussion, there's, it, there's often a problem, I would say, with architectural criticism where it is required to almost look at things in isolation and almost to the point of theoretics, meaning, when, when a building is built, 
the before it's even used, that's when it hits the popular media, mm-hmm. which means that architect or uh, sorry, which means that critics are going into that building and touring it when there's no one around. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really been used for a while. Mm-hmm. You could almost say that it it's floating in a vacuum. Yeah. Yes, physically it exists. It occupies space. It sits on that land, mm-hmm. but a building is not a uh, a steak. <laughs> yeah. You eat it. You get your 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 rush of uh, taste endorphins. Uh, it works its way through your stomach and out the other end it goes. And sometimes it takes years for a building to kind of find find its groove in terms of how it up it's operated and how its its users use it, right? Right. And it takes often takes time to find the flaws of the building. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things and this the flaws are definitely not something that architects like to talk about. They certainly don't like to be interviewed five years later when someone says, Can you explain why that building has the worst circulation system around bathrooms? Can you explain why that uh, uh, you know, museum people have to wait in line for forty minutes to check their coats. What mm-hmm. happened, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you, the, a they don't want to talk about it, but b it's one of those weird things that you don't you don't see in the first five days of yeah. reviewing a building. I've often wondered why don't why isn't there uh, and this this goes directly to the topic we said earlier about investment. Mm-hmm. If if media outlets had the money, the ability to invest in following stories through in terms of the proper uh, flow of, of how they go, mm-hmm. better stories would come of it, and therefore better criticism would come of it. Mm-hmm. And architecture, being what it is, needs time. Problem is we live in a in a immediacy mm-hmm. environment where all we care about is what's in our feed right now. 20 minutes from now, we'll forget about it. And social media is designed exactly for that. I want everyone to know that's not a mistake or a happenstance, that's by design. Social mm-hmm. media keeps you distracted. Architecture doesn't work with dis- good architecture doesn't work with distraction. Mm-hmm. Good civic engagement doesn't work with distraction. I would love if someone if if there was a, a, a commitment of resources to send journalists back, architecture critics or architectural journalists back to projects a few years after they're done and see the impact and and speak critically about it. But that there's just not that much time. There's just not that much investment in that yeah, type resources. of thing. Yeah, resources. And I see it all the time because uh, we're getting towards the end of that conversation. When I'm asked to photograph a building, more often than not, it's right before occupancy or right around occupancy when there's not a lot of people around and there's not a lot of clutter and the client hasn't brought in all their crap that the architect doesn't want to see. And to your point of the architect not wanting to hear what the flaws of the buildings are, are I mean, yeah, it makes sense. They don't want to talk about it because it's kind of bad publicity. But it would be really interesting. And I don't know what form this would take. And you and I have talked about this before and I've talked about this with other people as well. Um, a more to, to put together some kind of more uh, comprehensive criticism of buildings and spaces that encompass not just the aesthetics in the space, but how it serves its users. You know, if we're talking about the restaurants, what, what is the experience like from the time you walk in to the time you leave and you talk about, you know, the lighting, the acoustics, the, the ambient atmosphere, the food, the service? Because that would be a much more interesting form of criticism where you have a, a, almost a, you could call it holistic criticism, where you kind of try to cover all aspects of a project and give people a review that has gives them a pretty good idea of what they can expect. Yeah, I agree. I, I actually think that that would serve so many uh, valuable purposes. For one, it would um, keeping the conversation going would uh, encourage and um, 
sort of strengthen a public level of architectural literacy that serves that helps everyone in every direction. People being more aware of the built environment in a good way leads to better product, at least to better mm-hmm. engagement, leads to just everything better all the way down the line. Mm-hmm. But it's not just uh, you know, extending the the critical um, timeline doesn't just serve the public, it also serves the profession. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest, we know that architects are acutely aware of what they're doing, not just when they're doing it, but long after. I, you know, I've spoken to architects and I've asked, how, when do you, how often do you go back to the buildings you've already built? Many of them say, all the bloody time. And it's not narcissism, they're genuinely interested yeah. uh, in, in mm-hmm. seeing the ramifications. But the thing is, they're doing it in somewhat of a, of a <laughs> we already used the word echo chamber, they're yeah. doing it in somewhat of an echo chamber. If they're not uh, engaged by an outside source that is mm-hmm. as invested in exploring the positives and negatives of the end product as much as the architect is, well, how, who's going to engage them in that level of discourse? Right? You can't, just talking to your friends doesn't help. No. <laughs> you know, just talking to other architects could help, maybe. Uh, but this is where the value of uh, a critical media could, you know, sh- could and should be. It, it should be invested with that level of uh, power and engagement uh, that could have long-term beneficial results. Yeah, and I think we can conclude on that thought that, to me, any good self-respecting architect should seek that kind of criticism to learn from their mistakes. Because let's face it, nobody's perfect. We all fuck up from time to time. The work we do is not always up to our very high standards because most of us... um, I'd say creative people are very uh, critical with ourselves. But yeah, if you see criticism, that's the best way to learn. Because uh, if you hear someone else's opinion about your building and then you go revisit that building and say, yeah, maybe that guy is right. I shouldn't have done it that way because it causes that kind of problem. Yeah, I think that's, that's what we would need to see more of. And to your point earlier about... Uh, what would it take to improve the media landscape, like to, to, for, the, for better product to be out there? It's a good old-fashioned cause-and-effect relationship to the, what we said earlier about investing in your mental health. Mm-hmm. If architects invested in criticism, and I'm not saying they don't. I, I hope your readers aren't thinking that I'm just taking a broad swipe at, no, at some no. kind of uh, critical discourse ignorance or something. I'm not. But what I'm saying is if they put some money behind it, meaning if they subscribed to magazines that took a chance at being a little more critical and encouraged that criticism, or if they not only, uh, you know, if they followed, but also, you know, maybe subscribed to publications who had critics on the staff whose job is to be critical, mm-hmm. uh, like begets like, and you yeah. start to create yeah. a, 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 you know, a critical mass flow where suddenly even let's let's cross our fingers and hope maybe even advertisers start to notice, hey, architects are listening to these guys whose job it is to be critical or at least to raise questions, right? Uh, you know, and they're they're catching the attention of the architects. Attention, there's mm-hmm. a key word. We live yeah. in an attention economy. Mm-hmm. That's what social media is based on, an attention economy. If these critics were catching the attention of architects and architects were showing it by backing those critics, maybe sources of revenue would come in and say, okay, I want to be, I want to partner with these people who are raising mm-hmm. attention levels within the architectural world. Uh, you know, that, to me, that is like one of those moments hold your don't hold your breath but yeah. you know if we it, I'm, I'm talking to all of you architects out there listening you know complaining about the lack of literacy and awareness of architectural literacy and awareness well then you know back the people who are doing it 
don't assume that it's a free for like it's it's a free role and you you deserve it for free. No, yeah. back it somehow. And, and I'd say that I would call that leading by example. Show other people that you're willing to take the heat if there's heat to be taken and to learn from it um, in kind of this more academic process of sorts. But I think, yeah, the, 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 the most powerful idea from this conversation that I've gotten at least is let's put our money where our mouth is and invest in our own education and learning about what we do and get better at it because it's a, it's a step-by-step process and it's not going to happen overnight, but by investing eventually, one can imagine that, you know, five, ten years down the road, they would be a much better architect than they would be without doing it. Yeah, I mean, we've used the word educate a lot in this conversation, and I think it's a, I think it's a valuable um, metaphor, because think about it this way. We invest, there, there's a moment in our lives, it's the, you know, when we go to university, where we invest a lot of money mm-hmm. in people whose job it is to make us uncomfortable, mm-hmm. mentally uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We used to put a high value, you know, a premium on the professors whose job it is to say, you think you know something? You don't know shit. Mm-hmm. Now you got to think about this. Yeah. You, th- you think you got the answer? You don't got the answer. Are you going to, this guy over here, he has an idea. Talk to him, mm-hmm. read his book, mm-hmm. listen to her, ask her questions, right? All these things that are uncomfortable at, at a very important point in our lives when mentally we are still children yeah. moving into adulthood, we put a premium on critica- criticality, uh, criticism. And think of this, to me, that parallel, that philosophical parallel is directly related to what we're talking about in terms of media. Why have we suddenly stopped wanting people to make us uncomfortable mentally, to, to, to say stuff we don't, nec- we don't really want to hear, mm-hmm. right? We fully embrace when that happened during our educational uh, careers. Why aren't we uh, embracing it now? Some would say, you know, the architects listening out there probably would say, "Oh yeah, I listen to all kinds of uh, critics." Okay, then open yourself up to criticism. Mm-hmm. I'm not in a bad way. There's there is an art to it, uh, to good criticism. But the foundational point of criticism is to make you uncomfortable and make you think, is mm-hmm. to make you explain and make you engage with people. And so, like you know, to what you said a, a, a second ago, you know, if you invest in that, uh, you will. Take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing good comes for free. If you invest in it, you'll take it seriously, and you will create an ecosystem where uh, connecting with uncomfortable ideas will lead to better products because people have to defend themselves and debate and all the way down the line. You know, all the stuff that's not happening in yeah. social media. And I think that's the perfect thought to conclude on. So I want to thank you very much, Peter, for taking part in this uh, brand new podcast. This is episode number three of season one that uh, we'll release very soon. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio and edited by Ryan Akhtari. Until next time, ciao.